Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this, of course, is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And I believe this is uh, numbered episode 348. All right. And I want to apologize for getting this episode out so late. I had kind of a very crazy, hectic weekend. I had a family member who took two trips to the ER this past weekend, and somehow in between that, uh, in between those, I managed to go to a party too. I almost didn't go to the party. I only went with their blessing after it seemed like they were in the clear. And uh, the next night, it was another trip to the ER, so pretty crazy. But anyway, onward. Okay, so is there any other housekeeping to take care of? Oh yeah, if you happen to have gone back and listened to that mini-documentary episode I released recently, a uh, second time, no, it's not the Mandala effect, Uh, you're not losing your mind, I did actually tweak the script. There was a particular sentence that I just thought was kind of awkwardly worded or that was a little clunky. And you guys know how neurotic I can be when it comes to trying to get the episodes, you know, just the way I want them. So shortly after releasing the episode, I went back in and re-recorded the section that I was having second thoughts about, and then I re-uploaded the entire episode, and there you go. In particular, I think it was, it was a sentence near the beginning of that little Hellmouth documentary, where I said something to the effect that often the creature's jaws are full of frightened sinners or the tormented damned. And for some reason, that just seemed awkward to me in retrospect, after the fact. And I was like, hmm, they're not mutually exclusive. You can be a sinner and damned. Usually those go hand in hand. And you can be frightened and tormented. And so I thought that's the type of thing that people would understand and get anyway. You know, I wasn't saying it was one or the other, but I was being so neurotic that I changed it to... Usually the creature's jaws are full of frightened or tormented sinners or something like that. All right, that's how nitpicky I can be. All right, so I thought it might be fun to cover some pop culture stuff before, you know, we dig into the news stories. And so don't worry, I'm not going to make everyone feel guilty about the stuff we collectively do the animals as humans, you know. Again, don't worry, it's not going to be another one of those episodes. But I just thought it was interesting that, you know, I recently did a couple of episodes on animal welfare and the horrors of factory farming. And then uh, Joaquin Phoenix was, it was at the Oscars, right? And he was giving an acceptance speech. And he actually uh, mentioned the dairy industry and what cows are put through, you know? And it's uh, it's funny because Joaquin, not funny, haha, this is very serious stuff, but... uh, But yeah, you know, I mean, Joaquin Phoenix um, actually narrated two of those documentaries that had such a big impact on me. I believe he was the sole narrator for Earthlings, and he was one of a number of celebrities who took turns narrating Dominion. And I think he's also um, had some behind-the-scenes involvement with some of those uh, animal welfare documentaries too. Maybe Cowspiracy? Yeah, I just did a quick search. It looks like he was the executive producer of Cowspiracy, and uh, I guess he was involved with What the Health too. What the Health and Cowspiracy were made by uh, the same people. Is it Kip Anderson? 
um, who's kind of the driving force behind those documentaries, I think. And I was really glad that Joaquin Phoenix used his platform to bring attention to animal welfare, specifically, in this case, dairy cows. But I remember irreverently thinking to myself, hmm, if you're not someone who's keyed into the horrors of factory farming and, you know, hasn't peeked behind the curtain, you're probably like, am I on drugs? Did this guy just start talking about cows in the middle of an acceptance speech? You know what I mean? But of course, if you're someone who's seen those brutal documentaries about what goes on with factory farming, then, you know, everything he says makes perfect sense. But I knew what he was saying wasn't going to go over well with a lot of people and that there would be a lot of backlash, and there was. And I'm sure he knew that too, but he believes in the message and uh, he wanted to speak for the animals, you know? And I knew there would be a lot of backlash and I think it's because on the one hand, you have a, a lot of, you know, it's just very unpopular. People don't want to be reminded of where their food comes from or, you know, don't want to have to learn how awful the conditions are. And then also there's all the people who work in the dairy industry who aren't going to take kindly to that message, you know. And there were a lot of dairy farmers, etc., who were taking the Twitter or social media and it's funny, I forget who the exact YouTuber was, but I was watching a video where someone was kind of taking on some of the responses to Joaquin Phoenix's acceptance speech. And there was one video response in particular that was kind of dripping with irony. Joaquin Phoenix mentions in his speech about how calves are taken away from their mothers within, you know, usually the first day of life, uh, sometimes within hours. So we can get the milk to put in our coffee, etc., as he put it, instead of it going to the baby animals that it's meant for. And so uh, one farmer, I think it was, responded by videotaping himself feeding a calf as if to say, no, look, we treat the uh, the babies humanely or whatever. But the ironic thing was it was a video of him feeding or someone else uh, who works for him, feeding the calf with a bottle, kind of reinforcing the point that they're taken away from their mothers. And they're not nursing naturally. They're being bottle-fed by a human, you know? And I know I said I wasn't going to guilt everyone again and, you know, get into all the horrors of factory farming. I'll try to keep it brief. Well, brief for me, at least. It's kind of funny. On uh, I subscribe to a lot of YouTube channels. And often I don't get notifications for, you know, the content creators I'm actually subscribed to. But for some reason, there's this uh, doctor, I guess he's, he was a doctor. I, I think he may have had his license revoked or something. Um, this guy named Sean Baker on YouTube, he's been on Joe Rogan's show and he is on a complete carnivore diet, only eats meat, nothing but meat. And I keep on getting notifications every time this guy releases a new video, even though I'm not subscribed to him. So it's kind of weird. I don't know if I accidentally hit that little bell thing, that annoying bell system YouTube has now. I don't know. Can you sign up to receive notifications from a content creator without actually being subscribed to them? Maybe I'll have to look into it. But I actually don't mind receiving notifications about his videos because... You know, it can be kind of fun and interesting to hear an opposing take, you know. He made a couple of points that I thought had a bit of merit. 
he was real. You can imagine what his reaction to Joaquin Phoenix's uh, acceptance speech was. It, it wasn't very kind. But yeah, I looked into a couple of his claims, and it turns out there actually was some validity to what he was saying. Joaquin Phoenix mentioned specifically how cows are artificially inseminated, um, which is true. And some vegans have actually compared the artificial insemination of an animal to, uh, you know, like a, a sexual violation. Like, uh, I know it's a powerful word and I hate to bring it up, uh, but rape, basically, you know, they, they compare uh, artificial inseminating an animal to rape or sexual assault. And I imagine we could have a whole philosophical discussion about, you know, uh, consciousness, animal consciousness versus, you know, human consciousness. We are animals, but you know what I mean? And whether it's appropriate to apply those same kind of words, you know, to uh, an animal, sexual assault, rape or whatever. I'm sure at the least uh, an animal can feel very uh, distressed or uncomfortable by a human doing something like that to them. And uh, it, it is a very, especially when we're talking about cows, it is a very invasive procedure. So walking Phoenix mentions that in his acceptance speech. And also, like I was just touching on, he mentions the fact that calves are taken away from their mothers. And so Sean Baker's response was, in the case of artificial insemination, he was saying that Cows risk serious injury if they are allowed to mate naturally because of, you know, having an animal the size of a bull on top of them. And then regarding the case of the calves being taken away at an early age or, you know, basically within the first 24 hours of life or whatever, um, that that's done for the calf's own good because the calf can get injured being around all these larger animals. And so, yeah, I looked it up and there actually is some truth to those claims. But, you know, let's not sugarcoat things. It doesn't change the fact that the bobby calves, I believe that's how the, uh, the male babies are referred to. It doesn't change the fact that their fates are usually pretty grim. Uh, they either end up becoming veal, or if they are allowed to mature to some degree beyond that, they ultimately go to slaughter. And even if artificial insemination, in part, is to prevent injury to the cow, I mean, you could look at cynically, and in a sense, I mean, it's the truth, right? I mean, they're trying not to damage the product. And it doesn't change the fact that these animals are used usually cyclically, you know, impregnated, artificially inseminated over and over again because a cow can only give milk when, you know, after it's been impregnated. And once they're deemed as not being productive enough, they go to slaughter too. So, you know, like I said, let's not sugarcoat things. And speaking of the Oscars, there was so much buzz surrounding the film Parasite I decided to finally sit down and watch it, or rather ride my exercise bike and watch it. And yeah, so it made Oscar history, right, by being the first non-English language film to win a Best Picture. I actually thought it was pretty good. I thought it was very clever in certain ways. 
But it was different than uh, than what I expected. I, I think, you know, I'm like a horror movie buff. Uh, and for some reason, I knew it was supposed to be like a, a class allegory or something like that, you know. But I thought there was going to be more of a horror element to it for some reason. I was almost expecting like a mixture of comedy and body horror, like maybe like Aliens or like a Cronenberg film or something. So it was different in that respect. But I thought it was pretty good. I mean, having watched it after hearing that it was the first non-English movie to win Best Picture, I mean, maybe, uh, you know, the expectations were set really high. I didn't think it was mind-blowingly good, but it was, yeah, it was a good film, I thought. And then I also recently watched the movie Bombshell. It's about the kind of old boys club kind of mentality at Fox News. The sexual harassment allegations surrounding the late Roger Ailes, etc. And I have to admit, as someone who, uh, you know, leans rather left politically, it was kind of fun, kind of cathartic to watch a movie that kind of paints Fox News in a bad light, you know. There was one aspect of the movie that I kind of took issue with. And this is something I've been a stickler about for a long time. Um, I think, I don't know if I'm using this term correctly, but I think there's something in kind of film theory referred to as the true rumor or, or something like that. I remember first hearing about this because, you know, I'm a huge Doors fan and Oliver Stone, of course, you know, made that film, The Doors. And as like a hardcore Doors fan who had read all the uh, biographies, I remember watching that movie for the first time, and even though I really liked the kind of spirit and feel of the film, there were things that seemed factually inaccurate that didn't match up with, you know, what I had read in all those uh, biographies. And that's why I first heard that there's this kind of school of thought about, you know, the kind of the true rumor or something like that. Once again, if I'm using that uh, term correctly or if that is the uh, accurate term, this kind of um, school of thought that it's all right to alter facts for the sake of the story, the sake of the narrative. And to some degree, that seems to almost be like a, a reoccurring thing throughout Oliver Stone's work. Because didn't JFK also come under fire for... Uh, that kind of thing as well, you know, for kind of sacrificing factual accuracy for the sake of the narrative or the story and kind of playing fast and loose with the facts, etc. And I can remember another really big hit movie that kind of bothered me in that sense, too. And it was Gladiator, uh, Ridley Scott's Gladiator with Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix. Um, kind of coming full circle with that. And, uh, you know, it, it was a great film, you know, kind of epic and sweeping, you know. But I remember as someone who then and still does now, you know, loves ancient history and who has read a lot of the historical accounts of um, the classical world and the lives of the Caesars, etc. I remember they kind of uh, took a lot of artistic license with um, the facts surrounding uh, actually, one of my favorite philosophers, Marcus Aurelius, and his son, Commodus. And Commodus really was, you know, a real-life bad guy. But I remember um, there were things that didn't really match up with the historical account. 
And I've actually become kind of more tolerant or forgiving of that kind of thing in movies. Part of it might just be that I'm kind of jaded and I'm like, you know, I can't be bothered to care that much anymore. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's a movie. But I think the way in which they take artistic license and bombshell could be potentially problematic. Because I think the movie is a really good expose, you know, on Fox News and, and all that stuff that was going on behind the scenes. But there's one really powerful scene. And it, it's a scene that makes you really feel for the character. But then, you know, if you look into it, you learn that um, it, it's actually a composite character. So, and I have to say, the makeup effects in this movie are unreal. Um, Nicole Kidman as Gretchen Carlson, like Dead Ringer. Um, Charlize Theron, or is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> as, um, as Megan Kelly. I mean, it's the resemblance is like uncanny. And John Lithgow, even though he has that really unique voice, you can tell it's John Lithgow's voice, but the makeup job, they make him look exactly like Roger Ailes. It really is uncanny. But it's funny, they did such a good job on those characters, but then there's some that are like really bad. Like uh, the guy who plays Giuliani is this kind of heavy set character actor. I think he used to be on uh, that comedy show, Mad About You. And uh, it just doesn't really look like Giuliani. You know, it kind of interferes with your suspension of disbelief. And the guy they picked to be um, Sean Hannity, the Sean Hannity character is only in there for a little bit, but it doesn't really look like Sean Hannity at all. If they hadn't said it at the bottom of the screen, I wouldn't know <laughs> it was supposed to be Sean Hannity. Um, the character of Bill O'Reilly, that, that he's only in there for a little bit too. But the makeup job on the guy who plays Bill O'Reilly, that is awesome too. It's like uncanny. But yeah, so there's a composite character in the movie played by Margot Robbie. And the character has some, uh, my apologies if it's actually someone out there's, you know, last name. <laughs> but this kind of absurd last name, uh, said the guy named Albertelli, uh, Kayla Pospisil. Or something like that. It almost sounds like, you know, Kayla Popsicle. And there's this really powerful scene in the movie where this character is in Roger Ailes' office. And, and this is based on actual sexual assault allegations or sexual harassment allegations against Roger Ailes. You know, real allegations made by real women. But those are all kind of condensed into this one composite character. But where was I? Oh yeah, so there's this disturbing scene where this Kayla Popsicle or whatever her name character is in Roger Ailes' office. And Roger Ailes is being, you know, a scumbag. He's kind of coercing her, asking her to little by little to keep lifting up her skirt until he can see her underwear, and you can, you know, you really feel for the character. You can see how uncomfortable she is. And yet, at the end of the day, even though it's based on real accounts, um, this 
specific characters, technically a fictional composite character. And I think that kind of opens them to criticism where, you know, people on the other side, people who maybe want to defend Fox News can say, oh, you know, this uh, powerful scene in the movie, uh, the woman who's, you know, the focus of that scene, it's not even a real person or whatever, you know. But, but of course, you know, it's once again based on real accounts. But that's probably my only real criticism of the movie. I mean, in general, I liked it. I thought it was... Uh, Maybe it's a strange word for a movie that deals with such, in a way, heavy subject matter. You know, it's dealing with uh, sexual assault uh, or sexual harassment allegations. But it's kind of a, it is kind of a fun watch. It's a, a kind of colorful, entertaining uh, film. And if, like myself, you're someone, you know, who kind of leans left and you don't care for Fox News, but you know, uh, <laughs> but you're well acquainted with Fox News, it's kind of a, you know, a cathartic watch. <laughs> but let's see, news stories. Okay, so there's one here from Newsweek, and this is dated to uh, February 10th, so not that long ago. Catholic priest says pedophilia, or is it pedophilia or pedophilia? <laughs> Tomato, tomato on that extremely disturbing word. Uh, Catholic priest says pedophilia doesn't kill anyone after barring abortion rights lawmakers from communion. A priest in Rhode Island has defended his decision to ban all lawmakers who voted in favor of, I think it should be of enshrining, who voted in favor, or maybe, no, it might be right, <laughs> in favor enshrining abortion protections under state law from receiving communion at his parish. Reverend Richard Bucci made, uh, I don't know, why am I laughing at that? Reverend Richard Bucci made national news last week after he declared that every legislator who voted last year to pass the bill codifying the U.S. Supreme Court's 1973 Roe v. Wade decision will also not be allowed to act as witnesses to marriage, godparents, or lectors at weddings, funerals, or any other church function. The announcement was listed in the Sacred Heart Church in West Warwick's weekly, there's a lot of alliteration, West Warwick's weekly bulletin and included dozens of names in the House and Senate. The decision was made a few days after the 47th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Okay. And then Bucci, Reverend Blue Cheese, whatever it is. If they are proud of what they have done, why do they want to keep it a secret? Bucci told the Providence Journal at the time. Democratic State Representative Justine Caldwell, East Greenwich, was one of those who has been informed she can no longer receive communion or engage in any activity at the church after voting to pass the bill. She described Bucci's defense of the decisions as laughable. None of our votes are hidden, she tweeted. I campaigned on this issue. If they just want to do a PSA, they didn't have to say we couldn't be godparents or receive communion. No one has a problem with their votes on the record. And I was going to do kind of a deep dive on this one, go into the whole topic of abortion, what the Bible does and doesn't say about it. But to be honest, I just can't be bothered. Uh, I'll just say, as someone who was raised Catholic, who's now a non-believer, I would just be like, thank you. 
Thank you for disinviting me to all this shit. Thank you for freeing me from all these potential responsibilities. Um, have no interest in stepping foot in a church unless maybe it was to, uh, you know, admire the architecture or something. Uh, wasn't coming to the party anyway. Thanks for formally disinviting me. Okay, so friend and listener Liz Marie, actually, hopefully she doesn't mind me uh, mentioning her name, uh, actually brought this next story to my attention. I knew absolutely nothing about it. And to be honest, uh, I haven't really researched it, so I'll be uh, finding out about it now as I uh, read this article from USA Today. Two Idaho kids still missing. Mom said she was, in quotes, a god. What to know about her cult-like beliefs? Laurie Vallow, the mother of two Idaho children missing since September, allegedly believed she was a god and married self-published author Chad Daybell, who wrote dozens of books on apocalyptic events and near-death experiences. The bizarre case spans multiple states and suspicious death investigations, as Joshua, also known as J.J. Vallow, 7, and Tylee Ryan, 17, have not been seen since September 23rd in Rexburg, Idaho. Vallow failed to meet a court-ordered deadline to produce her children to authorities by January 30th, and she and Daybell were last seen in Hawaii without the children. Vallow and Daybell married just weeks after his ex-wife, Tammy Daybell, died in October, and her ex-husband, Charles Vallow, was allegedly killed in July by her late brother, Alex Cox, whose December death remains under investigation, too. This is, uh, there's a lot of layers to this one, whoa. Uh, wow. Laurie Vallow and her children moved to Idaho over the summer, but she never reported them missing and has not been cooperative in the investigation, police say. The couple has not been charged. Chad and Tammy Daybell have five children of their own. Underpinning the investigation are the alleged religious beliefs that she held and raised concerns among relatives since the children have gone missing. Laurie Vallow claimed she was a god, divorce records show. Is that... <laughs> yeah, I guess. I was going to say, is that something that normally uh, appears in divorce records? Uh, but I guess, yeah, I mean, those would possibly be grounds for divorce. The uh, other party's batshit crazy and thinks they're a deity. Charles Vallow claimed Laurie Vallow didn't want anything to do with him or Joshua, in, in quotes here, because she had a more important mission to carry out. According to the court documents, Charles said Lori claimed that she was a god assigned to carry out the work of the 144,000 at Christ's second coming in July 2020. Well, this summer, this summer, Christ's second coming, the court documents said. She also told Charles that she, why am I laughing? This is it's so bizarre. She also told Charles that she would kill him if he got in her way and that she had an angel there to help her dispose of the body, court documents said. Shortly after her alleged threats, Charles took out an order of protection against Laurie Vallow, according to court documents. Charles claimed that Laurie Vallow had, in quotes, become infatuated and at times obsessive about near-death experiences and spiritual visions. According to court documents, there's the, uh, the drinking game phrase of the week. According to court documents, 
He said he attempted to get her help. However, she refused to visit a doctor because, in quotes, they would discover that she is a translated being. Court documents said. I'm not kidding. There it is again. Drink up, unless you're driving. And even though I'm a non-believer, obviously I'm fascinated by religion. And uh, that's one way to become a non-believer, is read up on religion and slowly realize how uh, just how man-made it is. But uh, whenever I hear translated being or something like that, it makes me think of uh, Enoch. You know, it's kind of a mysterious biblical figure. And I'm trying to think if it was in an apocryphal or outside text where we have Enoch becoming Metatron. And uh, he's referred to as, you know, being translated. And Metatron, I believe, means voice of God. And you might remember that. I remember the movie Dogma, that uh, Kevin Smith movie. Um, yeah, so, uh, and it's Metatron, not Megatron. Uh, but uh, anyway, and the other thing that jumped out at me was the 144,000. And I believe that number actually is mentioned in the book of Revelation, but often we hear it associated with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, the LDS, things like that. Uh, supposedly the, uh, the number of the elect, um, you know, who are chosen by God and will be resurrected at the second coming or something like that. But anyway, continuing with the story, Chad Daybell's autobiography centers on near-death experiences. In his 2017 autobiography, Living on the Edge of Heaven, why is that, uh, is that an Aerosmith song, <laughs> Living on the Edge? I mean, I know it's a saying in general, but anyway, rein it in. In, uh, in his 2017 autobiography, Living on the Edge of Heaven, Chad Daybell depicts a deeply spiritual life in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. From his early years in Utah, death and near-death experiences for him and others surround his life. He says his first near-death experience came in high school when he was cliff jumping. He had just been injured in a ski accident. Wait, how did we go from cliff jumping to ski accident? He had just been injured in a ski accident and almost hit in the head by a golf ball. What? In the weeks leading up. When he jumped off the cliff into the water, he said it felt like his head hit concrete, but he soon realized, my spirit was partly out of my body, Daybell wrote. During those few moments, I could see on the other side of the veil, an endless white plain in all directions. I also felt tangible energy particles of knowledge rushing toward me from all directions. I just soaked it all in, he wrote. <coughs> all right. Technically, the he wrote didn't need to be in the funny voice. Okay, <laughs> anyway... So basically, I mean, we can probably all tell what's going on here. We have some delusional, narcissistic, religious freaks uh, running about and uh, some suspicious deaths and some missing kids. And on a serious note, I mean, I really, really hope those kids are all right. I mean, chances are they might not be, but... Uh, I mean, I, I hope against hope that those kids are, are eventually found, you know, safe and alive. 
But thanks to friend and listener Liz Marie for bringing that story to my attention once again. And uh, there's one more story. I don't know how deeply I'll get into it, but it's just, you know, uh, Jim Baker up to his old tricks. Televangelist sells $125 silver solution as cure for coronavirus. A guest on Televangelist Jim Baker's show suggested on Wednesday that a product sold on Baker's website might be effective at protecting against and killing the novel coronavirus. And we just know it's going to be bullshit, so why even get into it? But I'll probably end it there. So, uh, you know... Thanks, everyone, as always, for listening. And you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you want to help the show out monetarily, uh, no, you don't have to uh, pay 125 for some bullshit thing called a silver solution. You can just go to patreon.com slash doubt and support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.